to the Wellness as a Service podcast, a podcast tracking the future of data-driven disease prevention, life extension, and wellness optimization consumer products and services. And now over to your host, Leah Stryber. Hello, and welcome to the 14th episode of the Quantified Health, Wellness, and Aging podcast. On today's show, we have Dr. William Davis. Dr. William Davis is a graduate of St. Louis University School of Medicine with training in internal medicine and cardiovascular disease and advanced training in angioplasty at the Case Western Reserve University Hospitals, where he also served as Director of Cardiovascular Fellowship and Assistant Professor of Medicine. He now focuses on preventive care and providing self-empowering strategies to the public through his books and projects. He authored New York Times number one bestseller, Wheat Belly, as well as Undoctored. He has built a substantial online presence through his Wheat Belly and Undoctored blogs with a collective 90 million views between them, plus substantial followings on social media, including 300,000 followers on Facebook. Hello and welcome to the show, Dr. William Davis. Hi, Lee. Glad to be here. I've wanted you on for quite a long time. I remember reading your Wheat Belly book many years ago, and then in more recent years, your Undoctored book. Yeah, I've said some pretty controversial things, but I pride myself, Lee, on saying things many other people have not said before. I value uniqueness and uh, delivering a, a message, but all based on this idea that we can empower people in health, because as you know, uh, I think that's the whole philosophy of your of your podcast, that people in healthcare are not doing their jobs. They are doing the work of big pharma, the medical device industry, and the healthcare industry. And lost in that conversation is just simple, plain old getting people healthy. And so the, when you're talking to a doctor, the most ignorant person in that room about health is the doctor. And we get we can't we can't accept that anymore. So what do you think the purpose of a doctor is in in these times? Well, I think the doctor is good at dispensing drugs, doing acute and catastrophic care, critical care, uh, doing procedures. That's what they're good at. But if you ask a doctor about how do I improve my immunity, let's say against a virus, they're going to say stupid things like, you know, move more, eat less, get lots of sleep, all that stuff that any kindergartner knows, but won't have genuine insight into augment the immune response. And that's a big deal. Or how about uh, how can I be stronger, younger, healthier without drugs? So the, do- the doctor does not know what health looks like, even if it hit him in the face. And this is why I wrote the undoctored book, because I had so many thousands of people say, you know what? I went to my doctor and I said, I'm going to do this wheat belly lifestyle. I'm going to eliminate wheat. I'm going to address the nutrients that are missing from modern life. And the doctor says, well, if you do, I'm going to put you on Lipitor because it's going to give you a heart attack. Don't do it. Stupid. So I, what I saw was people doing it on their own. They'd come back to the doctor, 57 pounds lighter, no longer a pre-diabetic, off four hypertensive drugs, no longer suffering IBS or irritable bowel syndrome, acid reflux, rosacea, joint pain, joint swelling, leg edema, <laughs> a whole long list of problems. And the doctor says, uh, I don't know what you're doing. Just keep on doing what you're doing. In other words, Willful ignorance, willful indifference to what real health looks like and how it's achieved. And so I've, I've decided to no longer try to work this into the medical system. Because if you take the ophthalmologist, for instance, making $2 million a year by doing those ridiculous injections uh, into the eye that, that hardly do anything, he's not going to stop and say, hey, 
I, I better start educating my patients about how to preserve eye health early in life. They're not going to do it. So health is never going to come from the healthcare system. Healthcare industry will deliver the products and procedures that yield revenues for healthcare insiders, but they will never engage in health. Because I tell people, if you want to be freed of the healthcare system, just be healthy because they don't like healthy people. When I've seen this happen too, Lee, people come in who are genuinely healthy to the doctor. The doctor's flustered. He doesn't know what to do. And then they try to force things on you, like bully you into taking statin drugs or some other garbage drug that hardly does anything. I've not been to a doctor in two decades, and it was for a checkup. And I think the greatest, I think if you want to be, if you want to be rebellious, the two greatest acts of rebellion are one, avoid junk food, processed food of all kind, and two, take care of your own health so you do not get sick. That's the two greatest acts of rebellion. Yep. In modern times. How do you think healthcare went so bad? And how do you think that you describe a very sick population in that list, like you mentioned, rosea, joint pain, and so forth. So you seem to be alluding to the, to the population has got sicker. It hasn't always been a sick. Yeah, I think there's a whole collection of, of factors that created this monstrosity we now have. Of course, it's worse than the U.S., where healthcare is a $3 trillion industry, despite the fact that Americans are fatter and unhealthier than ever. So it's not as if you spend more money. If you throw more money at health, it doesn't make you healthier. In fact, the evidence is quite clear. The more you spend on healthcare, the more the mortality rate goes up. That's because doctors are hell-bent on getting you engaged into procedures, and procedures have complications. So this is well sorted out in the, in the, uh, in the literature. But I think there's a number of factors we can identify that led to this monstrosity. One is the increasing exploitation of people for money. So I was in cardiology. I practiced interventional cardiology, which is the practice of doing angioplasty and stents and atherectomies and aborting heart attacks and that sort of thing. That was among the most predatory of specialties ever, where people are put through procedures as much as a third, a third of them, even with lax criteria, a third are unnecessary. Now it's become clear that much more than that are completely unnecessary because there's no benefit to most procedures. But the, 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 the financial incentives were big. Then in the US, there's the tendency for patients to sue doctors sometimes for good reason, sometimes not. And I think that kind of soured doctors on the doctor-patient relationship, and they saw it more as a business transaction with legal implications. And so it tended to have doctors treat people as just customers as opposed to patients they cared for. And the, and the pressure to see volumes of patients narrowed uh, uh, visit times to just minor 15 minutes, often with a different doctor every time. So the old notion of the doctor knowing you and your mom, and maybe delivered you, and then delivers your children, and he knows your family's history, he knows where you live, he knows how you eat, etc. All that's gone. It's been reduced to a financial transaction, 15 minutes long, and no, and following guidelines. Like, everybody takes a statin drug, everybody has to have a blood pressure drug, everybody take these, these ridiculous one-size-fits-all type guidelines. Uh, but lost, as you see in the conversation, is the whole notion of teaching people or helping people understand how to be healthy without drugs. Do you have any hope that healthcare will change? Because there's all this talk of revolutionizing health healthcare and transforming healthcare and digital health. And I personally don't think um, such an oil tanker will turn. I see a second system emerging, which is very decentralized and coming from computer science. So I'm just wondering if you have any hope in healthcare 
the the present system turning, or do you have hope that something else will arise? I, I, I'm extremely skeptical that healthcare insiders will give up what they do because it's all about money, and I don't see them giving up um, the rich incomes they have by doing procedures and dispensing drugs. And by ins- healthcare insiders, I don't just mean doctors. There's healthcare executives, hospital executives, big pharma executives, and even worst of all, medical device uh, executives. These are the people properly placed to receive the wealth transfer from your my pocket to their pocket. So that trillion, $3 trillion is not well-spent money. It's horribly spent money, but it's going to the pocket of a lot of people, and they're going to protect that franchise come hell or high water. So I agree with you. The solutions will not come from within healthcare because they're still working on ways to monetize each and every disease. That's why when there have been uh, discoveries that led to treatments or ways to deal with a condition that were essentially free or low cost, they're often suppressed because uh, there has to be a patent. There has to be some means of monetizing that solution. And that's what healthcare is really good at. So healthcare will continue, but I'm trying to find ways to opt out to help people opt out of that ridiculous system. We're going to need it for catastrophic care. If if you get the coronavirus and you uh, can't breathe, you're going to need a ventilator. Uh, if you break your leg, you're going to need an orthopedic surgeon to fix it for you. So if you're in a car accident and you crack your head open, you're going to need a neurosurgeon to stitch it back together. There are times and places where you need those kinds of things. But what you don't need is some idiot telling you you need Lipitor for uh, coronary disease prevention or that you need to have a colonoscopy to surveil you for uh, colon cancer, or to follow a diet rich in healthy whole grains and uh, low in saturated fat. The the mistakes being made in conventional healthcare, time and time again, are being proven wrong. Yet the healthcare system gets bigger and bigger and better at delivering its mistakes because it pays well. Would you say? Would you go as far as to say healthcare is actually a danger to your health? It absolutely is, Lee. I have no doubt whatsoever. I, so I was a healthcare insider for many decades, and I practiced cardiology in, included 25 years. I was privy to the backroom talks, to the closed-door meetings with hospital executives in, in at least a dozen hospitals. And I can tell you, healthcare has nothing to do with health. It has to do with building the bottom line. So if I had a meeting, say, with hospital executives and the cardiothoracic and cardiology uh, uh, um, uh, practitioners. The question was not, are we getting any better at helping people not have a heart attack or heart failure or atrial fibrillation? The conversation always was, how do we increase revenues this year for 18% by increasing coronary bypass grafting volumes? How do we increase cath lab volumes by at least 10% this year? Has nothing to do with healthcare. There's quality uh, measures, of course, introduced, but uh, the bottom line was always money. That's the way the system is organized. And it's not to, uh, and at least for myself, to attack medical workers. Uh, I, I greatly appreciate them. But there is something systemically, uh, catastrophically broken. And I cannot see a way uh, that it could uh, suddenly fix itself. I think a new model has to emerge. When people are given some basic uh, guidance on how to achieve health, People can achieve spectacular health that is far superior to the kind of health the doctor would have achieved. So the, the approach I've been taking is this. We don't treat things. 
we address the factors that allow disease to emerge in the first place. Now, that doesn't work for everything. It doesn't work if you have a genetically programmed disease, for instance, or an injury. But for the vast majority of modern chronic health conditions that everybody's familiar with, hypertension, high cholesterol, fatty liver, high triglycerides, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, ulcerative colitis, all, the, the long, long list of common chronic conditions. So if you go to a doctor and you have high blood sugar in the diabetic range, he tells you to cut your fat, eat more healthy whole grains, go to a diabetes educator who tells you the same, increase your carbohydrate intake, your blood sugar goes higher, they put you on metformin, then bieta injections and Farsiga, and then insulin injections. And by the way, when you get to the insulin step, you gain an enormous amount of weight because insulin is the hormone of fat deposition and uh, an inhibitor of fat mobilization. And so you get fatter and more diabetic being taken care of by the doctor who's treating your blood sugars. The path I would take is say, let's eliminate the food that raise blood sugar and cause insulin resistance, grains and sugars. Let's address the common nutrients that are deficient in a modern life, like vitamin D because we live indoors, magnesium because we drink filtered water, iodine because we're often not coastal, uh, address the disruption of the microbiome, which is everywhere now. <clears throat> and uh, what you see is a type 2 diabetic become non-diabetic and thereby no longer expose the excess risk for blindness, heart disease, peripheral vascular disease, amputations, kidney failure, gastroparesis, and early death. So we, in effect, add eight years of life on average to a person by making them non-diabetic. No diabetic treatment can make such a claim. In fact, even if you have good control by their standards on multiple drugs, you are still exposed to lots of risk for heart disease, kidney failure, etc. So that's the kind of stark distinction there is between treating a, the phenomena of a disease and addressing the factors that allow a disease to emerge in the first place. Yeah, you were making the, the the point that when you are sick, healthcare often comes in and gives you an extra kick off the cliff. It waits until you're at the cliff edge, then intervenes, and then it gives you a an extra kick. And then once you have one uh, chronic disease, you tend to have get another chronic disease and another chronic disease because they're, I don't think they're actual diseases, if we could... Um, print them at a molecular level. I think they're just manifestations of the same underlying root cause, pretty much all chronic disease. And, and use of drugs leads to use of more drugs because you have to use more drugs to treat the side effects or consequence of the other drugs. Yeah, my poor mother um, was on 40 pills per day, and I remember one of the pills she was on was to stop her being sick from the pills 40 tablets uh, a day yeah. um yep and actually i'll take a sigh here because it's emotionally stressing but i'll i'll share with you uh something personal and w one of the reasons i switched from telecoms into this domain and now um this podcast and community i'm building is because of why i witnessed with my with my parents and in this case i'm describing my mother who was on 40 tablets a day and with an engineering mindset and computer science mindset, I've been going back over the years and analyzing what took place with her after hospital and, and visits to healthcare and what was done. And wow, she was definitely pushed off the cliff. And uh, as soon as she got rheumatoid arthritis, I would have recognized something uh, was not going right to begin with. And then she got HRT, which was a disaster. And then a hysterectomy another disaster uh, it was just one thing piling um against another um 
uh, similar with my father, but I'll leave that for now. When you, uh, earlier, you were saying that you can throw more money at healthcare, but mortality will actually increase, if I understood what you said correctly. And it reminds me of a previous guest, uh, Travis Christofferson, who, who, whose latest book is Curable. And in that book and on the podcast, he mentioned that if you look at data, places where you had more healthcare per capita when the spending went up, actually, the more people's lives became shorter. So it, it backs up what you said, that throwing more money at it. And that's the other thing curious about healthcare. All other industries achieve more efficiency over time. But healthcare is the only one that spends more and adopts more technologies but doesn't seem to have any uh, efficiency gains. Absolutely. Part of the problem is healthcare insurance is, is uh, uh, inserted into the uh, space between a patient and the healthcare system. So if we had that same system, say for your car, <clears throat> where the auto mechanic could just jack up prices because it was covered by insurance, you wouldn't have to pay, but you wouldn't pay, say, uh, $200 for a tune-up, you'd probably pay several thousand dollars for a tune-up because you would say, I only had to pay my deductible. I didn't have to pay the full $2,000. So so <clears throat> there's a lot of other intermediaries in this process. But once again, the, the, the bottom line here is the doctor's not telling you, the hospital's not telling you, the big pharma executive's not telling you that magnificent health is achievable with little to no drugs. I used to be a type 2 diabetic myself, Lee, about 25, 26 years ago. I did that because I went low fat on a vegetarian diet while I was jogging three to five miles a day. And I didn't understand why in the world I became a diabetic. Well, I'm no longer diabetic on nothing. And I have perfect blood sugar values, hemoglobin A1C, et cetera. The vast majority of people with, I, I pick on type two diabetes because that is a driver of growth for big pharma and for the healthcare industry. Because as you know, just in the US alone, it's 103 million type two diabetics and pre-diabetics. So Big Pharma, here's ka-ching, ka-ching, because it's a growth industry, double-digit growth. And that's why they're coming out with all these new drugs, when the real the reality is 90% of type 2 diabetics can be non-diabetic if given the right information. And that information, by the way, will not come from the American Diabetes Association. I was glad to see Verter Health raise so much money fairly recently. Yeah, uh, using the ketogenic diet for type 2 diabetics. Yeah, there's some There's some issues in there. It definitely is a good intervention when people are um, quite within the first few years into type 2 diabetes. I mean, I, you can get a great majority of those out of type 2 diabetes with a ketogenic diet. Yeah, I would go farther though, Lee, because a ketogenic diet works up front. There is indeed a drop in triglycerides. There's a, at least partial, if not total reversal of insulin resistance in the liver, reduction of fatty liver. There's reduction in VLDL particles, reduction in small LDL particles lead to heart disease. There's a rise in HDL. There's a reduction in blood pressure. But then several months into it, there's a shift in microbiome composition. There, is, there are good things like a rise in acromancy and parabacteroides, but there's also narrowing of species diversity. And then you may remember this with the Atkins diet. This is a parallel experience. People did the Atkins diet, very low carb, did great, lost weight, et cetera, had all those metabolic uh, improvements. But then typically a year, 18 months into it, there was a drop in HDL, rise in triglycerides, return of fatty liver to some degree, return of insulin resistance, constipation. Uh, now we know that there's a massive disruption of the microbiome. And there's also very good data to tell us that people who stay on long-term ketosis are exposed to uh, kidney stones, 
uh, very high likelihood, occasional cardiomyopathies, heart muscle diseases, osteoporosis, osteopenia, and probably diverticular disease and colon cancer risk, not to mention a dysbiotic, dysbiotic mediated changes in pancreas, gallbladder, etc. So ketosis is a physiologic phenomenon that's natural, like stress. But just like stress, unremitting long-term ketosis is asking for a lot of trouble. I'm seeing that now. People are coming to me with long-term complications of ketosis, just as you would with long-term complications of, of unremitting stress. So I'm trying to tell people that a ketotic ketogenic diet is a nice start, but you'll you'll be paving a path to disaster long-term. And diet, you can't stop at diet in the modern world because we have vitamin D deficiency that's rampant. We have magnesium deficiency from drinking filtered water. We have lack of iodine. We have lack of omega-3 fatty acids because no one wants to eat brains of animals anymore. And then we have the massive problem of SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, that I thought, Lee, was a rare thing. Now that we have been looking for it, and there's also a consumer device called the AIR device, A-I-R-E, that you can use at home, and it talks to your smart, smartphone via Bluetooth, and it tells you whether you have SIBO or not. That What we're seeing now is, a, is a, uh, an epidemic of SIBO on a par with the obesity and overweight epidemic. We're talking about two thirds, three quarters of Americans. Uh, that's just a US have this condition. It's much larger worldwide, of course. This disruption of bowel floor with proliferation of unhealthy species that have ascended up into the ileum, jejunum, duodenum, and stomach and increased intestinal permeability and release their byproducts from cellular turnover into the bloodstream, the process called metabolic endotoxemia. And that's why we see now SIBO expressed as the aches and pains of fibromyalgia, skin rashes of rosacea. I didn't want to divert there so early, but because you've went into it quite a bit, I, I, I will jump in on, on this topic. So when it comes to SIBO, my previous girlfriend, uh, young, um, she must have been, I don't know, 21 at the time. I said to her, I think you've got SIBO. And I said, hey, I'll order a test for you. And I think it was like $200. And I'll order a test for myself as a reference because I don't think I have SIBO. We ordered the two tests, blew in eight test tubes. Sorry about that. No problem. We blew in eight test tubes, if I, if I remember correctly. And yeah, right enough, came back. Uh, she has SIBO and I don't. And that's someone who's just 21, had a very healthy lifestyle. So any idea, if you if you think that there's been a rise in SIBO cases, do you have any idea what's, what's behind that? I think it's, once again, a whole long list of factors, even in young people, Lee. So exposure to antibiotics as, as infants, fewer babies being breastfed, which is a huge problem, more babies being delivered by C-section, and C-section is accompanied by uh, periprocedural antibiotics. Um Overconsumption of sugars, grains, uh, taking PPI drugs like Asifex and Protonix and Prilosec, that causes SIBO. Taking the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen and naproxen, that causes SIBO. Uh, there's probably many, many other causes, herbicide, pesticide residues in food, residues of antibiotics in animals given to accelerate growth. So there's probably several dozen causes that conspire all to change bowel flora. But the end result is this proliferation of species like E. coli, Campylobacter, uh, Pseudomonas, Citrobacter, uh, and, and many others uh, that are colon organisms. They're normal residents of the colon, but they proliferate. 
they outmuscle the healthy bacterial species, and then they climb up the gastrointestinal tract. But I think the, one of the biggest revelations of the last few years is that there was always a, an uncertainty. How could 30 feet of bacteria, SIBO, export their effects to the skin or to the joints or to the brain or to the heart, to the coronary arteries, to the pancreas, to the gallbladder. But it's now becoming clear that one of the big drivers is this process of metabolic endotoxemia. I, I hate that name. I, I wish it was called something more like microbial endotoxemia. But all it means is, so bacteria only live for minutes to hours. Not They don't live 70 years like us. And so there's huge turnover of these trillions of organisms who live and die, reproduce and die. When they die, many of the bacterial species release their byproducts. Uh, into the into the bloodstream, they're absorbed and into the bloodstream, and you can record uh, a manifold higher level of these byproducts in your bloodstream, such as lipopolysaccharide, and this is enormously inflaming. Another process occurred, and it's not quite clear how. Are you mean in leaky gut? There. Leaky gut. Uh huh. So the two most common causes for so-called leaky gut would be SIBO by an uncertain mechanism and uh, the gliadin protein of wheat and grains. That that science is well sorted out. So the combination is 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 a very very bad combination to have SIBO and to consume grains, and that's that's the kind of conversion the 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 perfect storm we now have in modern people. And that's why we have rheumatoid arthritis, fibromyalgia, polymyalgia rheumatica, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, uh, Parkinsonism, Alzheimer's dementia. It's a, not to say that these are the sole causes, but they're major contributors. Uh, with the undoctored book, you opened it with, and I'll, I'll, you quote with a quotation of Steve Jobs. I think the biggest innovations of the 21st century will be the intersection of biology and technology. A new era is beginning. Why did you open the undoctored book with that quotation? What I was getting at, Lee, is we're see I'm seeing this wonderful thing called collaboration online. You know, if this was 20 years ago and you had lupus, systemic lupus, and you wanted to f talk to other people with that condition. Good luck. In your town, you'd probably find nobody or one person. The doctor wouldn't help you, and you'd be on your own. In this day and age, you can find support groups. You can find Facebook pages devoted to that condition. You can find um, uh, wikis on this. So it's the age of collaboration. Uh, and what I'm seeing is when people collaborate without the doctor, they come to conclusions and answers and solutions far faster than the doctor does. I'm I'm sure you'll agree that there is, health is a spectrum that can be extended, that can be optimized, and it can have a big impact. This, what I found surprising was I thought I was well, and then I would reach a new level and go, wow, I don't know how, why I thought I was well, and then another level beyond that. And I tell you, the biggest, the, it might seem really simplistic, but the two biggest changes and simplest that made me feel more well many years ago was supplementing with D3 and magnesium, two supplements. Mm -hmm. So hope you, you agree we can be more well. In fact, it seems that many people are, have become really used to feeling lethargic. For example, before taking magnesium, I spent 10 years where I would always... If I sat down, I would say, oh, give me a minute. Give me a minute before getting back up again. Uh, you know, if somebody wanted something, my daughter wanted water, it would be, oh, just give me a minute. Give me a minute. And then I would, you know, eventually get up. And, wow, once I start supplementing with magnesium, I've never had that um, 
I've never had that lethargy again. I I don't even think about it. I, I just don't have it anymore. And and also the the what I've what I've gone into in the last um, fifteen months or so is aging, anti aging, and longevity. And I've came to see how much vitamin D three, zinc, and magnesium is needed for its for anti aging properties. So it's not just to feel more well. A- absolutely. Yeah. I also see synergies among these things by addressing the factors deficient in modern life that uh, when you correct them, wonderful things happen, as you experience with the magnesium, say. But when you correct as many as you can, there's also a synergy that develops, a synergy I don't fully understand. But you're right. It it gives you a level of health that you didn't think was possible anymore. And you wonder how in the world you got along all those years before you knew these things. Um, There's a bacteria. Lactobacillus reuteri, R-E-U-T-E-R-I, named after the German discoverer, Gerhard Reuter, that was present in most Western people up until the mid or late 20th century. But all the things that have changed our bowel flora, antibiotics, failure to breastfeed, C-section birth, uh, other prescription drugs, chlorinated, chloraminated water, uh, all kinds of things have changed bowel flora. One of the casualties of all those changes is this species, Lactobacillus rotori. Now, you can get Lactobacillus rotori from a company called BioGaia. They'll sell you two strains in a tablet meant for infants because they have good evidence to show that when children, infants get this these two bacterial species and strains, it's strain-specific, um, children experience less infantile colic. They experience less regurgitation of formula or breast milk. And so these tablets are meant for children, but they're very low counts, a hundred million of each species, which is, sounds like a lot, which is, is trivial when it comes to bacteria. So I made yogurt. It's not really yogurt. It's really a bacterial count amplification system. And I, I tweaked the process. So unlike conventional commercial yogurt that they ferment for four hours. And so fermentation yields an exponential rise in bacteria. Uh, but one bacteria becomes two, becomes four, becomes eight. And the doubling time this species is three hours. So after four hours, you've got almost nothing. So I fermented for 36 hours at 100 degrees Fahrenheit. This bacteria likes human body temperature in the presence of prebiotic fibers. We have a small clinical trial plan. It's been postponed because of the pandemic. We can't be having participants in the trial. But we want to see how far some some of the observations made in mice uh, include a quadrupling of testosterone in elderly mice and a tripling of growth hormone. So I want to know if that applies to humans. So we have a small trial plan, but we've just been delayed. But I believe it can, it, it does because we're all experiencing these effects by consuming this yogurt. The the species that you mentioned of, that's a lost species, correct? That's the species that most modern people have lost. And what's not clearly is, so there's many strains. We have to, when we're playing with bacteria and trying to get these very specific effects, we have to be very mindful of, of strains. So for instance, you have E. coli, your listeners have e-, e. coli, I've got E. coli in our guts. But what if you eat lettuce that's contaminated with cow manure with another strain of E. coli? You can die of kidney failure and sepsis. Same species, different strain. So strain can actually be a life and death difference. So when you're playing with something like Lactobacillus ruteri or any other bacterial species for that matter, you want to know the strain. In this case, the strains from BioGaia, uh, these are cumbersome names, but it's the DSM-17938 and the ATCC-PTA-6475 strains. 
Okay, and I think that that strain is used in industrial farming. I'm not sure if you're aware, because animals uh, face a lot of stress in industrial farming, and I believe they give them that strain, and it helps them overcome the stress and keep gaining weight in, in those harsh environments. Are you aware of that? Yeah, isn't that cool? This this organism is endlessly fascinating. Another aspect, I don't mean to make this all about rotorite, but it, you know, it is. It's kind of interesting. It's maybe not what we're supposed to cover, supposed in quotes, but it's, it's interesting. So please. One of the other aspects of rotorite is that, so most bacteria, most healthy bacteria, prefer the colon. They prefer the, um, the liquid, the pH, et cetera, of the colon. Rotori oddly prefers to colonize the ileum, jejunum, duodenum, and stomach, the upper GI tract, where it takes up residence and uh, is an avid producer of what are called bacteriosins, which are natural peptide antibiotics effective against the organisms, the species of SIBO. We can only speculate. We don't have the data to prove this yet. Is the loss of rotori that led to, that may have been part of the cause of social isolation, et cetera. Is it also part of the explanation for the huge uptick in SIBO? And should it be part of your SIBO prevention efforts because of this capacity to colonize the upper GI tract and produce bacteriosins? I think it is, but we have, we have yet to prove that. In the face of COVID-19, have you made any changes to your regime uh, in terms yeah. of supplementation or testing or anything to uh, boost your immune system? You know, Lee, in my programs where we eliminate all wheat and grains and supplement vitamin D, uh, anecdotally, though on a very large scale, many millions of people, we, we find that viruses, including the flu, are virtually non-existent. We almost never get sick. Even if everybody around you is coughing, sniffling, and has fevers, you almost never get sick. Or if you ha- if you do get sick, it's minimal. It might be 12 hours, 24 hours, just feeling a little bit off. You rarely do people in my programs actually get the full-blown virus. So that's one thing. <clears throat> so vitamin D is a big part of that. But I think the reduction in metabolic endotoxemia from elimination of the gliadin protein of wheat and grains is another big factor. But then another thing to know about is when you eliminate grains... You eliminate the phytates that bind all positively charged minerals in your gut and you, and you poop them out in the, in the toilet. One of those minerals is zinc. So by going grain-free, you in effect double your zinc absorption. And so a lot of people are taking zinc hoping to force their immune system or prevent zinc deficiency. But I think the best way to prevent zinc deficiency is by not being exposed to grain phytates, in which case the zinc is really of marginal benefit in this lifestyle. But then we've taken it farther. There's a, there, there's several bacterial organisms in the lactobacillus genus that can augment the, re, the um, immune response. But the evidence is especially strong for a strain called lactobacillus casei, C-A-S-E-I, Sherota, strain Sherota. This is an old strain. It's been known for almost a century, but the evidence has accumulated. If you get exposed to a large number of these uh, casei Sherota bacteria, you cut your potential for respiratory uh, infections, viral respiratory infections, by about 50%. This has been shown in several clinical trials, randomized clinical trials. And if you do get a respiratory virus, it cuts the duration by 50% or more. 
and it reduces a number of inflammatory markers. So very good evidence. The, the twist in this is it's once again it's patented and the patent's held by a company who sells it to as a little wacky product called Yakult, Y-A-K-U-L-T. It's from Japan. Have you done any testing, microbiome testing, for example, with Viome, to see if these yogurts do increase the, the, the strains? So we have not done per, not not that specific kind of study, but they have been done. Uh, there, you're I mean, if you a, eat it, do, if you eat it, do humans does it actually stay in the gut? It does, but only about no longer than three weeks. So you're hitting on a very fundamental uncertainty in the whole world of probiotics. So if I take Lactobacillus rhamnosus GG, which is an excellent strain known to have all kinds of wonderful effects, including re acceleration of recovery after uh, antibiotics with diarrhea. Uh, if I take Lactobacillus rhamnosus GG at high counts, it will colonize the lower GI tract for only a few weeks and then it disappears. Likewise, Rotori will colonize the upper GI tract for only about three weeks at most. It's, it's, it's uh, undetectable at three weeks. And likewise, virtually all strains we now use at, with, as presumptive probiotics. So there's something fundamentally missing here. Why can mom give you a bacterium like Bifidobacteria infantis and it stays in your gut for life unless it's eradicated by antibiotic or something else? Yet we take it as a probiotic and only it takes up residence temporarily. So there's something we don't know. My, my, my opinion on this, though, is that what we're not doing is giving people a collection. I don't know how many there are, 7, 10, 25, what I call foundational species. These are bacteria that the mere presence of these foundational species supports the presence and life of other bacteria. It makes their persistence more likely. I think one of those is Acromantia mucinophila. Uh, and there's some Maybe other spell that. Uh, a K K E R Ecker Mancia M A N S I A Mucinophila M U C I N Mucin I P H I L A I L A Mucin loving. That, by the way, is the species that proliferates in in ketotic diets, ketogenic diets, but oh, and oddly overproliferates on ketogenic diets because uh, if you, or I should say any diet in which you're not taking in a lot of prebiotic fibers, uh, including ketogenic diets, because what happens, so having a lot of acromancia, four or 5% of your total microbiome is a good thing. It reduces, that's what reduces seizure potential probably in kids with intractable seizures. It reduces blood sugar and insulin on a par with diabetes drugs, very powerful, reduces fatty liver, reduce, it supports the intestinal lining. But when you deprive your bowel flora of prebiotic fibers, a lot of healthy species drop in numbers or die off. Acromancia has a survival advantage. It's Acromancia mucinophila. It loves human mucus. It starts to feed on the human mucus instead. And then it increases because it's 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 uh, able to survive and it has less competition. And when it reaches about eight to nine percent of the total microbiome, it causes colitis because it's eroded your mucus lining. So it's a, an example of something that's good at a moderate count, very destructive at a high, at a high count. That's one of the things that happens with prolonged ketosis. Um, but I think that acromancia is one of those what I call foundational species that, when present at good numbers and supported by such things as polyphenols, prebiotic fibers, and not allowed to overproliferate, 
it supports the growth probably of dozens of other bacterial species. And I think that's the key missing. And hopefully positive species. Exactly. Rather than opportunistic. Exactly. Would you agree that most people have gut dysbiosis? Absolutely. In fact, I think we'd, we'd be hard pressed to find anybody who's got what we might regard as eubiosis or a healthy bowel. You know, we don't know what that looks like. You know, if we compare our bowel flora, of course, and this has been done, to the Hadza of Tanzania or the Matzas of Peru or the Yanomamo of the Brazilian rainforest or some other primitive cultures who are untainted by antibiotics and modern foods, etc., our bowel flora looks nothing like theirs does. And oddly, their bowel flora, being on separate continents, look very similar. So the presumption is, by people who do these studies, that their bowel flora may represent what bowel flora is supposed to look like, or at least what it looked like in the Stone Age, <laughs> that is the uh, Paleolithic era. And that we have this uh, perhaps adaptive, but also maybe maladaptive type of bowel flora. So nobody really knows. Do you do any kind of functional medicine type testing of the guts? Because I'm really big on measurement and seeing things and seeing things change. And I know we had Ubiome, but as you know, it's it's no longer in existence. Right. But there's other companies uh, doing testing of bowel flora at different levels. And, you know, Viome is quite a, a popular service. And then you've got your classical functional medicine um, labs for checking for gut dysbiosis. Do you do any testing yourself? Only infrequently, just because of cost, that is, uh, to my audience. So we have used the Genova. Uh, we have used Viome. Yeah, I've done that also, the Genova. Genova I think the Genova is very good. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's advances that need to be made and clarification on, on the meaning of some of these things. But I think we have to do these things because the more we do, the clearer the picture becomes. Uh, the one objection I have to some of these testings they, is the advice they give you. The advice they give you is pretty bad. For instance, I had um, my son's girlfriend has horrible celiac disease. Took 11 years, 13 years, something like that for diagnosis. She finally did it. Of course, she went on a gluten-free diet, which is a disaster because no one should be eating the gluten-free processed foods. But anyway, took a long path back to health. She submitted a specimen for, for Viome, and she had narrowed species diversity, as you'd expect. She had proliferation of a lot of SIBO-type organisms and a lack of healthy probiotic-type species. But the advice was eat lots of healthy whole grains. So there's still lots of uh, uh, advances need to be made in what these things mean. But I, I agree with you. We've got to start somewhere. And what other tests do you do yourself? Blood tests, et cetera. Well, you know, a lot of my background, Lee, came from this idea of trying to stop or reverse coronary atherosclerosis from the perspective of coronary artery calcium scores. So after my mom died of sudden cardiac death after her two-vessel successful angioplasty, I started to look for ways to identify the risk for heart. I was doing angioplasty and stent all that stuff myself, but uh, I wanted a way to identify somebody at risk for those kinds of things, heart attack, et cetera, a year ahead of time, five years, 10 years. And the only device then and now, this is 25 years ago, was a CT heart scan that generates a coronary calcium score because calcium occupies 20% of all plaque volume. And so if you have two cubic millimeters of calcium, you have 10 cubic millimeters of, of total atherosclerotic plaque. So calcium is a very reliable index of total atherosclerotic plaque volume. The more plaque you have, the more 
potentially you have for plaque rupture. That's heart attack. The naysayers say, say things like, that doesn't show you blockage, but blockage is what monetizes coronary disease. And most heart attacks have nothing to do with progressive increase in blockage. It has to do with, uh, with, uh, with rupture that just requires moments, like a little volcano in your arteries. And so the CT heart scan, uh, I set, went up in Milwaukee where I am, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and we started scanning people. It was one of the first scanners in the Midwest, one of the first scanners in the country. We're scanning people left and right 20 some years ago. And lo and behold, heart disease is everywhere. You get the results as a coronary calcium score. Zero is normal up to thousands. So I've got teachers, businessmen, engineers, um, uh, housewives coming in with scores of 300 or 500, which we know to be moderate to high risk. If you do nothing, this we help contribute to these data. If you do nothing, those scores go up on average 25% per year. At that time and today, my co- what my colleagues call optimal medical therapy. If you put somebody on optimal medical therapy, aspirin, a high-dose statin drug, statin cholesterol drug, a beta blocker, and a low-fat diet and exercise program, we help publish these data. Heart scan score goes up 25% per year, has zero impact on the rate of uh, increase of, in coronary artery calcium scores. So I've got people freaking out on me because they're having, you know, a score of 500 becomes 650 or six or 700 and this progressive rise, you're a step closer to heart attack and death. When you get to about a thousand, by the way, your risk for heart attack and death about 15% per year. So it's a very scary thing. My colleagues, many of whom are unscrupulous would say, let's do the real test, a heart catheterization, see if you need a stent or bypass surgery. And I saw many, many people put through unnecessary procedure. And that goes on even today. Even though the science is clear, you're not benefiting benefiting that person at all. But it took some years to try to figure out how to gain control over the progressive increase in coronary calcium scores and thereby risk. Uh, But one of the major causes is an excess of small LDL particles as revealed by lipoprotein testing, such as NMR lipoprotein testing. So while people with coronary disease almost always have bland LDL cholesterols, they virtually always have a a very scary excess of small LDL particles, like 1,800 or 2,400 nanomoles per liter particle count per volume. And so I asked, what foods cause small LDL particles? It was only two groups of foods, grains and and sugar. So we took grains and sugar out of the diet, small LDL drops from say 1900 to zero or other low number, and all these other metabolic transformations occur. And that's when I also learned that people got rid of their rheumatoid arthritis, lost weight, and had all those other benefits of going wheat and grain free. But then I added vitamin D. It was the first time I actually saw heart scan scores plummet, actually drop. Heart scan score 900 becomes 600, something like that. And then added some other components. Of course, fish oil, magnesium, because it's absent from most people's uh, drinking water, uh, correction of the microbiome. And now we see people left and right reducing their heart scan scores. So the testing we start with in that, in that kind of an approach is NMR lipoproteins, a lipoprotein A at least once, uh, a genetically determined factor. We check for all factors relevant to sugar, fasting glucose, fasting insulin, hemoglobin A1C. 25-hydroxyvitamin D to see your vitamin D status, thyroid measures, because thyroid dysfunction is, is another epidemic problem. Uh, we check a TSH, a free T3, free T4, thyroid antibodies, and reverse T3. And just that kind of simple menu gives you enormous insight, not just to coronary risk, but into metabolic risk. There's plenty more you could do. You could do an IL-6, IL-1 beta, TNF-alpha. You could do all kinds of things. But if you just do the basic things, 
uh, and you know, and, and interpret it properly, you have given people huge control over health. I, I'll, I wonder if you agree here. I came to, I spent significant sums of money. I mean, it's in the, it's, uh, yeah, it's in the many tens of thousands, uh, running over tests I never needed. Uh, and after playing for many years, I came to the conclusion that you could infer most of it, the great, great majority of it, simply by testing triglycerides over HDL, that ratio, and testing A1C. That was only two measures yeah. I needed. Absolutely. Huge insights into those numbers, which, as you know, most uh, uh, physicians p pay almost no attention to, except insofar as to say things like, your hemoglobin A1C is 5.6, you're good, because you don't need insulin or drugs yet. But never ask, why do you have a high hemoglobin A1C? What are you eating? What's your blood sugar like? What's your insulin resistance? What can we do to address your insulin resistance? Should we address vitamin D, magnesium, omega-3 fatty acids, and your, your SIBO to correct your insulin resistance? So you're right. Those those three simple values are packed with a huge amount of information. Yeah, it's so, so, cheap to, so cheap to perform. And so what you had hadn't said explicitly is, first, you, you you're not a follower of the heart diet hypothesis i you eat fat and it clogs your heart and makes you die so <laughs> you're you're not yeah okay you're you're not subscribing to that in fact you're going the other way and you're right you're saying it's actually the processed carbohydrates and sugars are driving heart disease correct absolutely because that's how you get provocation of small LDL particles so small LDL particles Lee are odd they're poorly recognized by the liver so they're not cleared very effectively so they persist for about five to seven days in the bloodstream as opposed to 24 hours of a large LDL particle caused by fat consumption it also is associated with a whole landscape of other abnormalities um, such as what are called postprandial after meal abnormalities um so it's the carbs that drive all this pro it's the carbs that get to the liver and are converted to triglycerides that enter the bloodstream so people who eat, who follow low fat diets have high triglycerides low hdl small small ineffective non-protective hdl they have large vldl particles that cause heart disease and they also have fatty liver because some of those triglycerides produced by the liver from carbs never make it out of the liver and they stay stuck in the liver by the way, one of the newest insights in the fatty liver is that SIBO, huge contributor to, to uh, fatty liver, because when the portal circulation drains the intestines, that's the part of the circulation draining the, the uh, gastrointestinal tract, it drains directly into the liver. So there's about an 800% increase in the bacterial breakdown products like lipopolysaccharide being delivered to the liver. And that is a huge insult to the liver. And it's one of the drivers of the inflammatory component of, of fatty liver. So you mentioned the NMR, which is a cholesterol test, which is a high-resolution cholesterol test. Uh, in Europe, you tend to get lipoprint more, although I believe it's available in the U.S. And so I, I, I was testing doing standard cholesterol panels up to five times per day every day, which might sound a bit crazy, <laughs> but I was, and this went on for years. And I noticed that if I consumed even a quality bread, a sourdough bread, I noticed that my LDL, on a high-resolution panel anyway, I noticed that the LDL would actually go down, but 
the volume of damaged um, of uh, lar- of small dense LDL would shoot up just by adding bread into my diet. Now, if I eliminate all grains and so forth, uh, all processed carbohydrates, I then my LDL would go up, but it would only it would be the larger particles would go up, and the small dense particles would go down. And if you look at the lipoprint uh, reports, it would say that it was uh, it was not likely to be a cause of heart disease. The profile I would achieve on a on a high fat diet versus a a diet which had healthy whole grains in it. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm fully in support there. You might want to mention uh, inflammation uh, because it's inflammation that I understand it damages the particles. Mm-hmm. And so what about uh, H, uh, high sensitivity C reactive protein? Uh, that's useful. <clears throat> TNF alpha is useful. Uh, IL-10 is useful. IL-6 is useful. Uh, what you see though is so much of this is dietary and microbiome driven. The conventional answer, which is to me, it's it's hard to believe that most of my colleagues believe that a high C-reactive protein mandates prescription for a statin drug like Crestor. And that's because of the corrupt Jupiter study, <clears throat> sorry, in which it was shown that people who have high levels, typically 3.0 milligrams per deciliter of C-reactive protein were at higher cardiovascular risk. Well, the solution for that, of course, not to administer a statin drug. In this study that was funded by GlaxoSmithKline, the manufacturer of Crestor, uh, the answer is to adjust the factors that cause inflammation. So we know that grains are highly inflammatory. We know that sugar is highly inflammatory. We know that f- most fats are anti-inflammatory, except for the omega-6 fraction. We know that uh, dysbiosis and SIBO is hugely inflammatory. Uh, lack of vitamin D is inflammatory. Lack of omega-3 fat is inflammatory. So we address the factors that cause uh uh, inflammation. So in, in my several thousand patients, this, this anecdote though, uh, C-reactive protein is typically zero or a minor value, 0.3 or something like that, uh, by following these uh, very natural, logical, anti-inflammatory health strategies. And when it comes to magnesium, I remember, I think it was in the undoctored book, you said you want about 500 milligrams of uh, elemental magnesium. And I don't think most people know what elemental magnesium is. Do you wish to quickly introduce elemental magnesium? Because when people hear 500 milligrams, they think, oh, well, that's what the tablet is. It says 500 mg on it. Right. So if you have a, I can't recall the numbers precise, but let's say you have a magnesium citrate tablet, 400 milligrams. Only a little bit of that is magnesium. I feel exactly how much. It might be something like 30 something milligrams, something like that. Uh, uh, the point is you want to get you want to be mindful of the magnesium intake not of the total weight of the tablet so if, if it says magnesium malate 1250 milligrams that's the weight of the magnesium plus the malic acid you just want the weight of the magnesium and they should specify that for you on the label if they don't just don't buy that product uh, so getting a healthy intake of magnesium as you've experienced has wonderful effects it has metabolic benefits like a reduction in blood pressure or uh, it amplifies insulin sensitivity, it subdues heart rhythms, a whole bunch of great effects. The problem, the challenge, as you know, with with magnesium is absorption. So in the hospital, if you came in with an unstable heart rhythm and you had a low magnesium, we could give you megadose intravenous magnesium, three or 4,000 milligrams, because you don't have a GI tract and diarrhea to to deal with. 
When you take that kind of dose orally, you'd have flagrant diarrhea. So we have to take these very low doses orally. Uh, but the problem is most forms of magnesium are better laxatives than they are sources of magnesium. So magnesium oxide is a lousy source of magnesium, uh, but most people take that form. So one of the things, by the way, Lee, I've been doing is encouraging people to make their own magnesium water. This might be tough in Europe because of the availability of some of the products, but we do a reaction be between the carbonic acid of carbonated water, like seltzer, and uh, the magnesium hydroxide of what we call in the U.S. Uh, milk of magnesia, unflavored. And you mix these two things together, you get a chemical reaction, which yields water and magnesium bicarbonate. Magnesium bicarbonate is by a long stretch, the most highly absorbed form of magnesium. I learned this lesson years ago when I had several people in my practice who had something called magnesium losing nephropathies. And all that means is something happened to their kidneys that erase their ability to retain magnesium. So one woman, for instance, had it because she got exposed to the cancer drug cisplatin and it wiped out her kidneys magnesium retaining capacity. And she would lose so much magnesium that if she didn't go to the ER or acute care every five to seven days, she would die of low magnesium. And so this poor woman and these other people were tied to the healthcare system every five to seven days to get an intravenous infusion of magnesium. Well, I wanted to get these people away from that. So I used every form of magnesium and monitored every couple of days their magnesium levels. What I saw was no rise in magnesium on these magnesium supplements until I showed them how to make magnesium water. And it was the only thing that essentially got them free from intravenous magnesium. It kept their magnesium levels much higher. So I've seen that play out now in people who have migraine headaches, hypertension, heart rhythm disorders, um, uh, or other conditions that are highly responsive to magnesium, that taking a tablet or capsule can take two years to raise your body level of magnesium. Magnesium water does it within weeks to months, much faster. And there's so much to ask here in so little time. You, I've heard you mention magnesium bicarbonate a few times in various places, and I think you're the only person I've heard using the phrase magnesium bicarbonate. So by magnesium bicarbonate, is this is the magnesium water that you speak of that you're saying you can make yourself? Yes. So recipes I've posted everywhere in my Wheat Belly books, my Undoctored book, my Wheat Belly blog, my Undoctored blog. I, I put it everywhere I could. The challenge in Europe and Australia and elsewhere is I, I'm told that you don't have access to this, to this product called uh, Milk of Magnesia. So I, I'm not sure if there's a workaround for you, if you can somehow get it shipped in. It's an inexpensive product. It must not be flavored because the flavoring they use in that product blocks I the remember reaction. as a child, you could get hold of it. I don't know about it nowadays. I'll take a look and I'll provide all links in the show notes. So I, one of the tests I do is uh, magnesium RBC. And my intracellular magnesium uh, is virtually always low. And yet I'm taking three magnesium to four magnesium tablets a day, half a gram each of different bindings, be it three UNA or, or oxide or uh, citrate or glycinate. I have a mixture and I, I, I burn through magnesium for some reason. Now, you mentioned other people burning through magnesium. Apart from the pill issue, remember I'm popping four a day here. Um, did, what issue do, did they have? I'm just asking for a free diagnostics. <laughs> I, I think a lot of the 
a lot of the problems with magnesium come from not in you, but in people in general, from grain consumption. We're once again back at that phytate question. So the what's happened in the U.S. And, and most other parts of the world is farmers and agricultural scientists are very mindful of pest resistance in their various strains of, of wheat and other grains. <clears throat> so they've chosen strains that have greater phytate content because it's it's great it's great as a pest resistant maneuver, but it's also a very potent binder of any positively charged mineral. So when you, you know, we're told that, of course, you must eat healthy whole grains for fiber and vitamins and nutrients, but the, actually the opposite is true. Grains actually reduce your nutrition. Your magnesium level goes down. Manganese, calcium, iron, zinc, and some others are actually substantially reduced. I've seen many, many people with iron deficiency anemia that are profound from eating grains. So uh, a lot of the problems with magnesium come uh, indirectly through grain consumption, the phytates of grains. But then we have, once again, this issue with absorption. I think you're experiencing this, this, this issue of where you can take a lot of magnesium, but the absorption is not very good. And that's why I came up with this magnesium water recipe, because this magnesium bicarbonate is a far superior way to get your magnesium. It still takes some weeks to build up your magnesium, uh, but it occurs much faster than the years required for mag other forms of magnesium. I appreciate that. I'll take, take a look at that. Because of, uh, so you'd mentioned uh, CAC scores, and I'd been considering getting a CAC score, and then I became concerned because of uh, radiation and thought, hey, I'll hold off on this because it's quite high levels for the CT. Um, and in, to help counteract general everyday EMF stresses, I started taking um my molecular hydrogen tablets, which give eight parts per million. And they each tablet gives you 80 milligrams, allegedly, of elemental magnesium also. Although I've been taking it for some time, and again, I don't see a rise in magnesium RBC. Uh, are you aware of molecular hydrogen? Uh, never heard of it used for health purposes, no. Okay, I'll need to uh, send you a link. I'll put uh, a link in the okay. show notes. Uh, you, I, I see we're running out of time here, so let me just jump to a few quick questions. So you did the Wheat Belly book, which was one of the best-selling books uh, in in the health space, or if not the best-selling book in a, in, a, in uh, the diet category, if I recall. And then you did Undoctored. Are you working on a, any other books? Working on a book about the microbiome. The, the um, pandemic is not helping things. Publishers are running scared, but uh, the microbiome, I, the microbiome, Lee, I, I think is so enormously underappreciated. It's becoming clear just what a big factor this is, but I think it's bigger than than most people think. Okay. And do you, are you able to share any titles at all or give any hints? No, because I don't have a contract yet. Nope. And we're, still, we're negotiating it right now. Okay. So Okay, okay. And when it comes to, I, I'm sitting here on the table and I've got this molecular hydrogen in my hand, but I also have um, iodine. So while I have you here, I take this detoxidine, but I think you recommend classic Lugols, I think you pronounce it, which is different. Well, this is Nashan uh, iodine, it's detoxidine. Yeah, I've actually discouraged people from using Lugols because it's a very high potency. There's a weird conversation. There's no question. We all need iodine. No question. Um, the RDA in the U.S. is 150 micrograms per day, but that's the 
uh, amount they arrived at by asking, how much do you need to not have a goiter, an enlarged thyroid gland? I asked a different question. What quantity of iodine is required and what form for ideal thyroid health and performance? And I think, I think it's in the range of 350 to 500 micrograms. We've never seen iodine toxicity. We've never seen residual thyroid dysfunction at that level. Uh, my preferred form is kelp because it has a mixture of iodine forms like potassium iodide, potassium iodate, sodium iodide, sodium iodate, iodinated proteins, and molecular iodine. Whereas most preparations like Lugol's or potassium iodide drops are just that potassium iodide. And it's, it's served us very well, no toxicity, great effects. But there's a peculiar conversation in the U.S. where people are taking mega doses of iodine and making all sorts of claims. Uh, one, there's no rationale for it. And two, what I think they're really doing is inadvertently treating SIBO. Because if you take mega dose iodine that exceeds your gastrointestinal capacity for iodine absorption, it acts as an antibacterial and you're treating SIBO. So I think that's why they're seeing some great effects. They, they don't know that they're treating SIBO and they think it's from the iodine per se, and it's not. Some actually say it, it ruins their health taking too much iodine. They claim it caused them Hashimoto's. That also, and I've seen lots of people who uh, developed hypothyroidism from megadose iodine. It could be as low as 6,000 micrograms. And those people with megadose iodine, they're taking 20,000, 30,000, which we know, this is not in question, we know causes toxicity. Like people on the island of Hokkaido in Japan who eat brown seaweed, brown kelp, they get iodine toxicity galore. They have TSHs of 20 or 30 or 40, and they have massive impairment of their health. They have to stop eating the seaweed. So we, we, we know that megadose iodine is toxic. So I'm just a bit scared that these people are falling for that silly argument. Yeah, I, I also blood test for iodine and I also take kelp. Oh, great. Uh, great. Yeah, because the good thing about kelp is you don't have to worry about um, uh, heavy metals. Right. And there, there's this conversation. I think the full uh, spectrum of iodine's benefits has not been fully charted. We know that iodine is uh, concentrated by the thyroid, of course, but also by the salivary glands, by breast tissue, and by the gastrointestinal tract. And it's not quite clear if different organs require different forms of iodine. So the, there's a Toronto group that has uh, some evidence to show that the breast tissue pr prefers molecular iodine, I2 but that uh, the, uh, the thyroid does fine with potassium iodide. So there may be some differences in need. So I think we stack the odds in our favor by taking something like kelp that has a variety of different forms. I agree with you. And it's like magnesium is in different parts of the body prefer different bindings of magnesium, be it the heart, the brain. Interesting um, idea. Okay. I take it you also take K2. I just had to throw it in because it hadn't been mentioned, vitamin K2. Uh, I've talked about K2. I have some reservations. I think the uh, evidence is pretty good that it supports bone health because it's used as a drug in Japan. So it does uh, uh, have an effect on bone health. The cardiovascular end is very poor. That is, we have the Rotterdam Heart Study, which is an observational study, which is uh, like saying we have almost no evidence at all. But there is a prospective study being conducted right now, K2 versus placebo. So we wait those to really find out if there's actually any K2 advantage. I can tell you when I tried to help people stop increasing their heart scan scores, vitamin D, huge effects. K2, zero effect. So I'm not convinced K2 is that necessary. I also am concerned that you know one of the things we're seeing, Lee, is that Bacteria, healthy probiotic species, are wonderful sources of numerous nutrients. 
such as B1, B2, B6, B9, B12, uh, folic acid, and K2. So se- several species have now been identified that convert K1 in green vegetables like kale and spinach to K2. So is the apparent need or benefit, if there is any, to K2 really a reflection of dysbiosis or SIBO? So that, that's one of my reservations. But uh, that all said, there's no harm in taking K2, of course, like MK7, 180 micrograms a day. That's appreciated. And I greatly appreciate your time. And, oh, my, my uh, uh, but Weston Price, his Activator X, that was K2. Uh, so they speculate, yes. That's uh, a speculation. Okay, thank you very much, and thank you so much for your, your time. Thank you, Lee. My pleasure. For more information, please see hyperwellbeing.com or follow Twitter at hyperwellbeing.com.